Chapter 17 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Ionian Islands. I venture to think that Mr. Gladstone never undertook a more congenial task than that which was offered to him by the Tory government, which had turned out Lord Palmerston. When the Homeric scholar was invited to go out to the Ionian Islands for the purpose of conducting an inquiry on the spot as to the complaints and grievances of the islanders. The proposal was made under the inspiration of Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton, the novelist and dramatist, who had become secretary for the colonies in the Tory government. Bulwer-Lytton's career in Parliament had up to this time been little better than an absolute failure. He had been in the House of Commons from 1831 to 1841, and his attempts at parliamentary debate had ended in almost absolute breakdown. But he was a man of indomitable perseverance, and he seems to have said to himself that he would not die until he had made a name as a parliamentary orator. A debater he never could have been, because he was so deaf that he had to read a speech in the newspapers before he could attempt to reply to it. His articulation was from actual physical causes so defective that almost any other man would have considered himself utterly debarred from any attempt at eloquence. But Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton had a boundless confidence in himself. I should have called it a boundless self-conceit if he had not made good his pretensions so far as popularity were concerned. One may smile at the extravagance of the style displayed in several of his novels, but it is impossible to deny that the novels had an immense popularity. He wrote a play and was told by the critics that he had no dramatic gift. He accepted the fact that the play was a failure, but he said that he could do better, and he wrote The Lady of Lyons, which, with all its preposterous faults, had for more than a generation a vast success and even still holds the stage. Inspired by these successes, he seems to have made up his mind that he would conquer the House of Commons also. He did, in the end, conquer the House of Commons after a fashion, very much as he had conquered the literary and the dramatic public. Even in the full popularity of Dickens and Thackeray, he held his own with the literary public, even in the days of Gladstone and Bright and Disraeli, he accomplished a marvelous success in the House of Commons. He was a master of the art of gorgeous phrase-making, elaborate, no doubt, but very splendid, Whenever it was known that he was about to speak in a debate, the house was crowded. I am really unable to explain the secret of his success, but the success itself was at the time a fact which it would be impossible to doubt. His speeches are well nigh forgotten now in the House of Commons, and nobody any longer believes that he was a great orator. Some of us did not believe it even then and even while we were under the influence of the spell, we felt pretty clear that it was but a glamour and a magic destined to lose its effect. 
Still, we could not deny that Bulwer-Lytton had conquered the House of Commons and held it for the time enthralled. Then he turned on to prove himself a practical statesman. He founded, for example, the colony of British Columbia. But the mission of Mr. Gladstone to the Ionian Isles was something more in keeping with Bulwer-Lytton's general tastes and tendencies. The seven Ionian Islands were united as a kind of commonwealth by the settlements of 1815, and they were placed under the protection of England, which had the right of maintaining garrisons in them. England was represented by a Lord High Commissioner, who was usually a soldier and who was commander-in-chief as well as civil governor. The Republic of the Seven Islands had a Senate and a Legislative Assembly. For many years there had been growing complaints in the islands against English administration. The complaints admitted, in fact, of no real compromise. What the islanders wanted above all things was to be Greeks, and to be united with the kingdom of Greece. It was futile to point out to them that their material affairs were much better administered under the English government than they were likely to be under the government of King Otho, the dull, incapable ruler of the Greek kingdom. It was of no use to tell the islanders that they had much better roads and harbors and lines of steamers than were possessed by the inhabitants of the Greek kingdom. Their whole ideas of life were not limited to roads and piers and bridges and harbors. They had an impassioned, romantic, indomitable desire to be united with their brothers of the kingdom. Futile, unreasonable critics in this country tried to convince them that the islanders, after all, were not of kin with the Greeks of the mainland. It was argued that the inhabitants of the mainland had got so intermixed with other races that they could hardly be considered genuine Greeks at all. The islanders could not be reasoned out of their national sentiments by any inquiries into the pedigree or the family tree of the Grecian kingdom. So there was always some trouble in the Ionian Islands, and the Lord High Commissioner every now and then dismissed some more or less mutinous Parliament and convened another by a general election, and the new Parliament was in spirit just the same as the old, and things went on exactly as they had been going on before. Bulwer-Lytton was, it would seem, the first statesman in office to whom it occurred to ask himself whether, after all, there might not be something worth considering in the claims made by the people of the Seven Islands. Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton, says a modern writer, had not been long enough in office to become soaked in the ideas of routine. He did not regard the unanimous opinions of the insular legislature, municipalities, and press as evidence merely of the unutterable stupidity or the incurable ingratitude and wickedness of the Ionian populations. Therefore, it occurred to him that it might be as well to send out some impartial statesman who could examine the controversy on the spot. 
and he could think of no one so well fitted for such a task as Mr. Gladstone. Everyone knew that Mr. Gladstone was in strong sympathy with the general movement of Greece to accomplish a high destiny in Europe, and the mere fact that such a man was sent out would be enough in itself to prove to the islanders that no predetermined spirit of hostility was dictating the mission. The news of the offer was at first received in English society with incredulity, and then with a good deal of ridicule. Is it possible, wise and solemn people asked, that Mr. Gladstone could be induced to accept so crazy a mission? Mr. Gladstone, however, did not think the mission altogether crazy, and he had once accepted it. Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton had made in his dispatch an eloquent allusion to Mr. Gladstone's Homeric studies, and dry officials insisted that this was nothing short of an unwarrantable outrage on all the precedents of conventional diplomacy. What are we coming to? they asked. We have a Prime Minister, Lord Darby, who goes in for Greek studies. We have a novelist as leader of the government in the House of Commons. We have a novelist as colonial secretary. And these three propose to send out a man on a mission to the disturbed Ionian Islands for no other reason than because he is fond of reading Homer? Mr. Gladstone, however, was in hope that he could do some good by accepting the mission, and he went out to the Ionian Islands, arriving at Corfu in November 1858. Up to that time, I believe, he never had been in Greece. It must have been to him like the actual realization of youth's best dream when he stood on the soil of Greece when he went from island to island of that enchanting Greece for which nature and poetry and history and tradition have done so much, when he saw the home of Ulysses and the fabled rock of Sappho, and above all, when he climbed the Acropolis of Athens and gazed upon the Parthenon, and turning his eyes one way looked on Mount Hymetus, and turning another way saw Salamis, and then, on a clear day, the outlines of the steep of Acro-Corinth. Even the most commonplace among us, who have in our early days been at all in love with Greek poetry and Greek history, were it through the blurring medium of translations and cribs, have felt, as we reached that enchanted soil, rather as if we were coming home to some familiar scenes of our boyhood, than if we were entering for the first time into a foreign country. If that is so with the commonplace among us, how must it have been with a man like Gladstone, steeped to the lips in all the poetry, the history, and the traditions of Greece, and with an opportunity given to him now of visiting Greece, not merely as a tourist, however loving and devoted, but as a man entrusted with a mission to listen to the complaints of the Greek islanders, and to endeavor to find some remedy for any genuine grievances of which they complained. Mr. Gladstone, it is needless to say, went to the task he had undertaken for the British government with the most genuine and exact loyalty. On December the 3rd, 
1858, he called together the Senate of the Septinsular Commonwealth at Corfu, and he explained to them the task which he had set out to accomplish if he could. At Corfu, and during all his public addresses in the Greek islands and the mainland, he spoke in Italian, which is the commanding foreign language once you leave Trieste on the way to the Levant. Mr. Gladstone did not attempt to speak in modern Greek. He could read modern Greek with perfect fluency, and has been heard to complain that he found some difficulty only when Greeks would write to him in a very bad hand and in cursive Greek. But the hopeless incompatibility between the pronunciation of Greek taught at Oxford and the Greek spoken in Corfu or in Athens would have rendered it impossible for him to make himself effectively understood if he attempted to address in Greek a modern Greek audience. Everyone who has been in Greece and who knows anything at all of classic Greek must have found that while it is easy enough to make out the meaning of a leading article in an Athenian newspaper, it is hardly possible to make one's self understood by or to understand the courteous Greek to whom one puts a question in the streets. The effect of Mr. Gladstone's speeches in Italian was something superb and electrifying. He told the Senate of the Ionian Islands at Corfu that the liberties guaranteed to the islanders by the treaties of Paris and by the Ionian law were absolutely sacred in the eyes of the Queen of England. But he said, on the other hand, the purpose for which the Queen has sent me here is not to inquire into the British protectorate, but to examine into what way Great Britain may most honorably and amply discharge the obligations which for purposes European and Ionian rather than British she has contracted. Then he made an official visit to all the islands, receiving deputations and delivering replies. He undertook that a full inquiry should be made into every complaint or grievance, and that a thorough system of constitutional government should be established in the islands. As I have said, however, the Ionians had one uncompromising grievance, the grievance that they were kept from a thorough union with the Kingdom of Greece. The Legislative Assembly of the Seven Islands voted unanimously an address to the Queen, praying that they might annex themselves to the Greeks of the mainland. Mr. Gladstone's visit was, in fact, a totally unsuccessful scheme for those who fondly desired that the protectorate of England should be everlasting, and that the islanders should be brought to submit themselves to it and reconcile themselves with it. It may be taken for granted that Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton was not one of those who believed in the possibility of prevailing on the Greek islands to hold themselves aloof from the Greek kingdom. No doubt, when he selected a man like Gladstone for the mission to the Ionian Islands, he foresaw well enough that the occasion would be availed of by the islanders to make such a demonstration as would convince the dullest Philistine in Westminster Palace that the hearts of the Greek islanders were unconquerably set on a union with the kingdom of Greece. 
The people of the islands received Gladstone with all the enthusiasm and devotion which they believed due to one who was at heart in favor of their national aspirations. They cheered him and crowded round him and cried Zito for him, not as the Lord High Commissioner Extraordinary of an English Tory government, but simply as Gladstone the Philhellene. His tour through the islands and in the mainland was simply a triumphal progress. His path was strewed with flowers. Up to the last, he maintained his assurances that the only object he was commissioned to attempt to accomplish was to make the protectorate of England acceptable to the Ionian islands, and not to release the islanders from the protectorate which had been imposed on England as well as on the islands by the United Councils of the Great Powers of Europe. The islanders listened and applauded, but all the same, they insisted on regarding Mr. Gladstone's mission as the foreshadowing of their national aspirations, of their union with their countrymen in the kingdom of Greece. So, indeed, it proved to be before very long. The one material and practical result of Mr. Gladstone's mission to the Ionian Islands was to make it clear to even the dullest among us here at home that there was no way of satisfying the Ionian Islanders but by allowing them to unite themselves with Greece. We could easily, of course, crush them by superior strength, but until we had extinguished the life of the last Greek islander, we could not extinguish the just and natural passion for union with parent Greece. Mr. Gladstone, of course, got a great deal of abuse from the Tory press in England, and was accused of having stimulated and fomented the desire of the islanders for a release from the British protectorate. The most hasty perusal of Mr. Gladstone's speeches must have shown that he was most cautious not to do anything of the kind. In no way whatever did he exceed the strict terms of his mission to the islands, but in any case some of the London newspapers wrote as if the Ionian islands had been bound from all time to a grateful devotion to England. They wrote as if England had called the islands into being, and as if any wish to get free from English control were as ingrate and graceless an act as the conduct of Reagan and Goneril, the daughters of King Lear. There was an attempt made for a while to maintain the protectorate, but events soon settled the question. The opportunity came a few years after. The Greeks of the kingdom got sick of the stupid rule of their dull and heavy sovereign King Otho. They simply bundled them out of Athens, bag and baggage. Then came the question what to do next. The Greeks themselves had probably had quite enough to do with kings for their time, although they had had only one sovereign. But the great powers of Europe, and perhaps more especially England, pressed upon them that they had really better have a king, for the mere look of the thing. There was at that time no republic in Europe but the Republic of Switzerland, and Greece did not feel strong enough to hold out against the pressure. The Greeks invited Prince Alfred of England, afterwards Duke of Edinburgh, and still more lately Duke of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, and in fact they elected and proclaimed him king. 
but there was a clear understanding in European statesmanship that no prince of any of the great reigning families should be appointed as a sovereign over Greece. It was not in the least degree probable that an English prince would have accepted or would have been allowed to accept any such responsible and precarious position. The government of the Emperor Napoleon III promptly managed to put in a practical objection to the proposal by delicately pointing out that if any of the great powers were to be allowed to appoint one of its princes to the throne of Greece, France had a prince of her own imperial house, quite disengaged, who might have a claim at least as good as another. The allusion was, of course, to the unemployed Caesar, as Monsieur Edmond Abut described him, the late Prince Napoleon, the emperor's cousin, a man of extraordinary intelligence, culture, and capacity, a statesman and a brilliant orator, by far the most gifted of the Napoleon family since that family's great founder, but who with all his gifts came to nothing in the end. The sovereign and governor of England would not in any case have allowed Prince Alfred to accept the crown of Greece, even if the prince himself had had the slightest ambition that way. But in any case, the significant remark of the French government would have settled the question. Punch worked a capital comic cartoon out of the offer made to the sailor lad, Prince Alfred. Then someone started the suggestion that a prince of the House of Denmark should be made King of the Greeks, and the suggestion was accepted. The House of Denmark, it is hardly necessary to say, is brought by marriage bonds into close relationship with the royal family of England. The Prince of Wales is married to a princess of the House of Denmark. The second son of the King of Denmark was offered the crown of Greece and accepted it and became king not of Greece, the Greeks, like the French of later monarchical times, were very particular about the title, but king of the Hellenes. Meanwhile, the English government had undergone a change, and Lord John Russell had come into office as foreign secretary under Lord Palmerston as prime minister, with Mr. Gladstone as chancellor of the exchequer. The occasion seemed propitious to the new government to allow the Ionian islanders to carry out their long-cherished wish. Lord John Russell obtained the consent of the great continental powers to the handing over of the islands to the kingdom of Greece and to its new sovereign. A great deal of anger was expressed, of course, in some of the Tory newspapers, and Lord John Russell's action was denounced as though he had hauled down the flag of England from one of the empire's most ancient and cherished possessions in cowardly deference to the demand of some great foreign power. As I have already pointed out, England had never conquered the Ionian Islands, had never annexed them, had never set up any claim whatever to their ownership, and had merely accepted out of motives of public policy the uncomfortable and troublesome charge which had been imposed upon her by the other great states of Europe. Some years passed between Mr. Gladstone's visit and the cession of the Ionian Islands to the Greek kingdom, but the one event was the direct consequence of the other. But for Mr. Gladstone's visit, the liberal government and the English people generally would never have known how resolute, how passionate, 
how unconquerable was the desire of the Ionian islanders to be in union with the people of the kingdom of Greece. The object lesson which, as I remarked before, is always needed in political affairs, was supplied by the reports and descriptions of Mr. Gladstone's progress through the seven islands. Not one Englishman in 50,000 cared before that visit three straws about the condition of the feelings of the Ionian Islands. The ordinary Englishman hardly knew who the islanders were or where they lived or what was the matter with them. He saw now and then in his daily paper some brief announcement that the Lord High Commissioner had dissolved another parliament in Corfu. The announcement did not affect him with any degree of interest. Very likely he did not know where Corfu was, and in case he did, would not have cared. But the condition of things became very different when one of the foremost English statesmen, perhaps the most picturesque statesman of his time, was sent out to inquire into the alleged grievances of the Ionian islanders, and when the papers every day began to contain long descriptions of his movements and full reports of the addresses delivered to him and all the replies which he returned. Then the minds of many men woke up at once to the reality of the state of things and to the fact that there was in the far-off Levant a race of men over whom England had no right of conquest or rulership whatever, whom she was simply taking charge of to oblige the other great European powers, and who were filled with a passion to be united politically with their kindred in Greece. By the time that the Greek Revolution had been accomplished, the English public was quite prepared for the proposal of Lord John Russell. With a large number of that public, the mere sentimental consideration that the brother of the Princess of Wales was to be the new King of the Hellenes settled the matter altogether. The vast majority, therefore, of the English people entirely approved the withdrawal of the British protectorate and the annexation of the islands to the Greek kingdom. End of chapter 17